Welcome to Side Effects May Vary, the podcast from Monash Pharmacy and Pharmaceutical Sciences. I'm John Palmer. Each episode, we investigate a particular medicine or disease, and we try and trace some of the ripples of its impact, some of the side effects that perhaps aren't immediately obvious. This is part two of our piece on malaria and antimalarials. We have three main segments for you today. Two of them are historical, and the third is extremely up to the minute and possibly even a glimpse into the future. First, we have an interview with Robin Anders, who has been fighting against malaria in various capacities for at least half a century. Robin was in Papua New Guinea during the 1960s, where he was involved in something called the Global Malaria Eradication Program, which, as the name suggests, intended to eradicate malaria and other mosquito-borne diseases. One line that appears with some regularity in some sections of the media is that the failure of this program was an unintended consequence of the then nascent environmental movement. But as Robin tells us, it's a little more complicated than that. Then, to be a Christian is going to tell us another story from the life of medicine that we talked about a little bit last week, quinine. Last week, we explored a couple of instances where it seemed like quinine played quite a decisive role in determining the outcome of a couple of fairly pivotal historical contests, the US Civil War and the successful construction of the Panama Canal. This week, De Vere takes more of a macro look at quinine as a technology of colonialism, tracing its role as both a servant and a product of the British Empire. And finally, we take a bit of a deep dive into an issue that our interviewee Sue Charman mentioned in passing in part one of this episode, drug delivery. In some cases, a drug can be really, really effective in controlled settings, but once it's out in the real world, there can be all sorts of obstacles in the way of it performing well. Uh, Sometimes those roadblocks can be as mundane as the number of doses required, which can decrease adherence. But particularly in the developing world, those obstacles can be more serious. A medicine that requires, for example, cold chain storage or administration by a qualified nurse or doctor is not going to be terribly effective in places where there are neither. And, as anyone who's ever had one will attest, there's an added layer of complexity in delivering medicines to children. One of our research themes has a really novel solution to some of these problems, and it's recently won them the Australian Museum's Eureka Prize, which is one of the biggest scientific prizes in Australia. But before we get to any of that, we have something a little unusual for this show. We talk about disease a lot, and we talk about medicines, and we talk about the underlying science, but very rarely do we actually talk to patients. John Mukagotho is a PhD candidate here at MIPS, working under the supervision of Darren Creek, with whom we spoke in the previous episode. Um, Jomu is one of many researchers we have here working on malaria, but he's also been a malaria patient, having had the disease himself a couple of times. Devia Krishnan asked him what it was like. Um, so my story with actually having malaria is fairly boring. <laughs> um, the most recent time I had it was when I was uh, 16 at the time. And really, I was over in Kenya for three weeks and for nine days I was just in bed, Um, which sucked, but I mean, I was still alive and stuff and I could eat. Um, I just was really tired and didn't have any energy. So on the scale of how bad symptoms are, that was actually not too bad. Um, And even, um, so my earliest memory of having malaria, I was five. We went to this really cool restaurant. We were all very excited. Um, So this was a restaurant where they bred wild animals. So we had antelope and zebra and crocodiles and things like that. Uh, We were really excited to go and two days before we went, I got malaria. And by the time we got there, I just had no appetite at all. My little brother, who was three and a half at the time, was just pigging out on everything and he'd eat stuff off my plate. And I was just sitting there not able to eat anything because I didn't have malaria. So, I mean, the fact that that's my worst personal memory of malaria is probably a good sign for me. 
Um, but I've seen a lot of other experiences with family members and friends where some of them have ended up dying. Or um, I remember my brother was hallucinating really badly when he had it. Um, my mum had a similar thing. It's similar to the flu in that sometimes you get a really bad bout of it, sometimes you get a really light bout of it, and it's hard to gauge, you know, how bad it's going to be for you until you actually get it. And how did they diagnose you with malaria? The most recent time they took a blood test and they just tested it under a microscope. So malaria parasites you can see in blood cells and they just show up. You have to stain it in a particular way and then you can see that the parasites are there and then you know that someone has malaria. And what's the treatment? I'm picturing a malaria equivalent of aggressive bouts of Tamiflu, but I could be wrong. Yeah, so um, the treatment was just a pill. Um, the, main, the one I had most recently was artemisinin, which is the go-to treatment whenever someone gets malaria anywhere in the world at this stage. And is it a coincidence that you sort of ended up working in anti-malarials or was that sort of a passionate decision? Um, I always knew I wanted to work in medical research somehow. So when I was finishing year 12 and looking at my options, I wanted to do biomed or farm sci or something like that. Um, and then I saw that this faculty in general actually did a lot of stuff with neglected diseases. So um, the stuff with um, sleeping sickness and obviously malaria and things like that. So I was really interested in looking at diseases that affected Africa because that's where my family's from. So I wanted to have a look at that. Um, and then in second year, um, Darren actually gave me a summer research project. So I got to work in his lab and work with malaria parasites. It was kind of cool to be able to do something that I could tell my family back home in Kenya, hey, I'm working on malaria parasites and they just got what I was going through. So they were all very excited for me and I think I just kind of fed off that enthusiasm myself. And what are you doing in that space now? Um, so my project centers around we found this new anti-malarial molecule and um, as a medicinal chemist I'm trying to make that molecule better. Uh, in both its efficacy and also its pharmacokinetic profile so that hopefully, hopefully one day we can actually get it to be something that might actually get into people, but that's a fair way off. And for our listeners, I'm going to ask you to break down what you mean by pharmacokinetic profile. Uh, yes, of course. Um, so when you have any type of medicine, it needs to go into the body and it needs to have certain properties that let it actually go into your blood so that it can treat the sickness. So there's no point having a medicine if it can't get into the point where it's an issue. So malaria is a parasite that exists in your bloodstream. So you need to have the medicine able to go into the bloodstream to actually stop those parasites. So we want to get it to be able to go in there. And then the other thing that you want with an anti-malarial is, because malaria normally affects poorer countries, it needs to be able to last. So you can't give a medication in a poorer country that you know, they have to take every four hours. It has to be something that's daily or even less than daily if possible. So we want to make sure that we make something that will actually last in your body because your body is really good at clearing things out. So we want to make sure that we don't have that with our possible drug. So there's the story around malaria that I first encountered in an article in the New Yorker around the turn of the century by the well-known podcaster, writer and general idea haver Malcolm Gladwell. I don't think that by any stretch of the imagination that he was the first person to connect these dots, but I think this article popularised the narrative, and I've seen it pop up fairly persistently in quite a few places over the years since then. His original story is actually quite nuanced, but many of the later iterations appear to have been written with the idea of pursuing a particular narrative. So Gladwell tells the story through the vehicle of a guy called Dr. Fred Soper. Soper was an American who was the most famous and arguably the most effective malaria fighter of the mid-20th century. Uh, for example, in 1938, there was an outbreak of malaria in Brazil that killed 20,000 people. 
the government called in SOPA, who recruited around 40,000 workers, who worked at just an incredibly meticulous and detailed plan to fumigate houses with a natural pesticide to kill the mosquitoes and to spray a diesel-based mixture on standing water to eliminate the breeding ground. And in 22 months, he eradicated the mosquito from an area of 18,000 square miles. Bear in mind that he did all this without the aid of a really, really good insecticide. But at around the same time as the outbreak in Brazil, a Swiss pharmaceutical company was in the process of bringing one to market. The compound in question was dichlorodiphenyl trichloroethane, better known by the initials DDT. DDT got a good workout in the Second World War, particularly in the Pacific Theatre, and when an outbreak hit Sardinia immediately afterwards, Sopa got a chance to use it on an eradication program. Sardinia was such a success that he began to dream big. Could he eradicate malaria from the world once and for all? Um, I'm going to read a passage from Gladwell's article. Uh, Whatever you think of his work, he's a fantastic pro stylist and he puts it better than I ever could. Beginning in 1958, the United States government pledged the equivalent of billions in today's dollars for malaria eradication, one of the biggest commitments that a single country has ever made to international health. The appeal of the eradication strategy was its precision. The idea was to use DDT to kill only those mosquitoes which were directly connected to the spread of malaria, only those which had just picked up the malaria parasite from an infected person and were about to fly off and infect someone else. When DDT is used for this purpose, Spielman writes in Mosquito, it is applied close to where people sleep on the inside walls of houses. After biting, the mosquito generally fly to the nearest vertical surface and remain standing there for about an hour, dot dot dot. If the surfaces the mosquitoes repair to are coated by a poison that is soluble in the wax that covers all insects' bodies, the mosquitoes will acquire a lethal dose. Saper pointed out that people who get malaria and survive generally clear their bodies of the parasite after three years. If you could use spraying to create a hiatus during which minimal transmission occurred and during which anyone carrying the parasite had a chance to defeat it, you could potentially eradicate malaria. You could stop spraying and welcome the mosquitoes back because there would be no more malaria around for them to transmit. End quote. Time was obviously of the essence here. By the mid-50s, Soper and his colleagues knew that significant levels of DDT resistance emerged in mosquito populations after about five or six years of use. They had a limited window in which to press home their advantage before their greatest weapon lost its effectiveness. Unfortunately for them, and for us, the story goes, opposition was steadily mounting to the use of DDT because of its knock-on effects on the environment. In 1962, the environmentalist Rachel Carson published the landmark book Silent Spring, which pointed out that DDT didn't just kill mozzies, it killed all manner of insects with catastrophic effects on the food chain. This is Gladwell again. Carson quoted a housewife from Hinsdale, Illinois, who wrote about the damage left by several years of DDT spraying against bark beetles. The town is almost devoid of robins and starlings. Chickadees have not been on my shelf for two years, and this year the cardinals are gone too. The nesting population in the neighbourhood seems to consist of one dove pair and perhaps one catbird family. Will they ever come back? The children ask, and I do not have the answer. End quote. Silent Spring, in this account, sparked a change in public opinion in DDT. In 1972, the ultimate result of this was the Environmental Protection Agency in the United States issuing a cancellation order for DDT based on its adverse environmental effects, such as those to wildlife, as well as its potential human health risks. With the social license for the use of DDT severely eroded, the story goes, it became more and more difficult to get governments to agree to using it, and all the while, resistance was rising. Soper's window came and went, and with it, the possibility of eliminating malaria. 
As I say, Gladwell's article is actually fairly nuanced, but it's not uncommon to find articles that essentially run the narrative, DDT good, environmentalist bad. So I wanted to talk to somebody who could tell me what actually happened. The first place I went was a research group headquartered at Monash called the World Mosquito Program. They're not actually focused on malaria and are more into addressing dengue and yellow fever and Zika and other mosquito-borne viruses. Um, nobody there felt qualified to speak to the sober story, but I did end up exchanging emails with their Director of Impact Assessment, Katie Anders. Her father, Professor Robin Anders, has spent much of his professional career battling malaria in various forms, including working on a vaccine. Uh, he was employed by the Papua New Guinea Health Department between 1965 and 1970 to teach at the Papua Medical College in Port Moresby. In that capacity, he became aware of the eradication program and some of the problems they were encountering. This is what he had to say. A number of countries in the late 40s or early 50s showed that DDT spraying was very effective at controlling malaria. And it was done in South America. It was done in uh, Greece, for example, in, in Italy and on Sardinia, the island of Sardinia. They virtually wiped out uh, malaria with DDT spraying. Uh, in America, America, there was a lot of malaria in America. It was very much reduced in the 1930s. The Tennessee Valley was one of the worst places. And uh, Roosevelt's New Deal, one of the effects was to improve the housing in a lot of rural uh, spots where poverty was very, uh, very big. And so that that's something we, not everyone still appreciates that one of the most effective measures of controlling malaria is to improve housing. Nevertheless, malaria persisted in the United States until after World War II, and, and it was essentially finally eliminated from the United States with DDT spraying. The, the, all this evidence built up, and in 1955, the World Health Assembly uh, passed a motion to establish a global malaria eradication campaign. And uh, there were probably close to 150 countries where malaria was endemic at that time. And many of these countries established malaria control units to manage these eradication. And so this program was rolled out around the world. Rachel Carson had got interested in uh, the environmental effects of DDT in the late 50s. And it took her a while to write the book. And in fact, she died of uh, cancer a couple of years after the book was published. So it was finally published in 1962, but it was uh, parts of it were serialized in uh, newspapers in America. And, and it became a bestseller. I don't think that had any real impact on the global malaria eradication uh, campaign being uh, terminated in 1969. There were lots of other reasons why it was failing. The, the program eradicated malaria from some 30 to 40 countries, mostly countries that were relatively high income countries, countries with reasonable health transport and other infrastructures, countries that by and large had higher levels of education. But they were, most importantly, they were countries where the transmission intensity was much lower. 
a one-step intervention such as DDT spraying or a vaccine against malaria or a vaccine against COVID against an infectious disease is a long shot. For malaria, just eliminating the vector and stopping the vector biting people with DDT was never going to work in the very high transmission regions of the world. And so it had very little impact in sub-Saharan Africa, where the highest transmission levels are. It did. It achieved elimination in countries where transmission levels were low. The environmental movement and Rachel Carson's book, one of the most important books ever written, uh, probably didn't have much of an impact on it. It was uh, DDT resistance, uh, change of behaviour of the vector, uh, some, some anophline vectors of malaria prefer to bite indoor, uh, endophagic, they prefer to rest indoors, endophilic, but mosquitoes changed their behaviour. Uh, they started biting more outside. There were failures in organisation, and the, these failures were always more marked in countries with poorer infrastructure. Transport arrangements, making sure the DDT was there for the six-monthly spray round, getting adequately trained sprayers. Uh, they initially recruited village sprayers in Papua New Guinea, uh, and many of them were very competent but sometimes they weren't so competent. And sometimes you needed total cooperation from the villagers to make sure that every building in the village was targeted with the spray. Uh, sometimes the, they didn't give enough DDT, other times they gave too much. There was one very important problem with the global malaria eradication campaign it was a fairly militaristic style operation. It was one size fits all, and it didn't adapt well to local circumstances. The malaria programs were also set up as semi-autonomous operations within departments of health. And, and the director of the Department of Health in Papua New Guinea at the time is still alive in that, living in Adelaide in retirement, the age of 96, and I spoke to him yesterday about this. And uh, he said he got regular reports or at least annual reports from the head of the malaria branch and it was certainly under the control of the Department of Health, but it wasn't integrated within the healthcare system of the countries as is now happening uh, and is encouraged and has been happening for the last 30, 30 to 40 years under the revised uh, review of how malaria might be controlled. After 1969, when uh, the, the targeted eradication campaign finished, that wasn't the finish of the use of DDT. It, it was banned in, uh, in America in 1972 for agricultural purposes. And we should realize that the major use of DDT 
was for agriculture. It got into the soil, worms got polluted with DDT and other insects, birds would eat those worms, uh, they would get DDT, would build up their eggshells thinned. Uh, and of course, the iconic bald eagle in America, the population decline struck a real chord after um, the publication of Silent Spring. Now, Tavia Krishnan has a story that traces the migration of quinine. At the time, colonialism kind of presented itself as the expansion of the Enlightenment, the sophisticated, morally and technologically advanced Europeans bringing civilization to the poor, benighted savages. And we now tend to think of it as quite the opposite, as sort of murderous and extractive, stronger nations using their technological advantages to enforce their will on other nations. But in Div's telling, sometimes it wasn't even that. Sometimes it was a shell game. As Div reveals, in the hands of colonial administrations, quinine was an incredibly powerful technology. But it wasn't even European. It was discovered and refined by indigenous Americans and had to be covertly stolen by Europeans and smuggled out of the Americas. Having stolen the seeds from one set of colonial territories, they then had to use the advantages of another colony to turn those seeds into medicine. They couldn't grow it themselves. And then finally, having stolen the technology from one set of colonized people and used the stolen land of another colonized people to manufacture it at scale, they then used that technology to consolidate their grip on a third set of colonies. Anyway, I'll let Div tell you. The story of quinine is actually a prime example of the British Empire operating at its peak. Ruthless, effective, and of course, profitable. And its story begins much earlier than you might actually think. You probably wouldn't actually recognise this cinchona tree. Fairly innocuous looking, big waxy green leaves, normal looking white flowers. It could be an entirely forgettable tree. However, the Quechua people, indigenous to Peru, Bolivia and Ecuador, had cottoned onto something quite special about the tree's bark as early as the 14th century. The Quechua people had worked out that the bark could treat their fever. Grinding it up and mixing it with sweetened water, something that actually sounds a lot like our modern day tonic water. Mostly a local remedy in indigenous communities, it wasn't brought to Europe until Jesuit missionaries from Spain came over there in the 17th century. The missionaries had watched the local indigenous communities use the bark for its medicinal properties and then took it back with them when they returned to Europe. The transfer of bark from the hands of the Quechua people into the Jesuit hands inadvertently changed the course of history. The cinchona tree is native to the tropical Andean forests in South America. Its power lies in what can be extracted from it. You may remember this from our first episode, but in case you'd like a refresher, quinine is one of the earliest known anti-malarial alkaloids extracted from the bark of said cinchona tree. Dating back centuries, Central American civilizations, including the Inca, the Maya, and the Mixtec, had always had access to quinine, with their communities being lush with the cinchona trees. However, unaffected by malaria at that point, they never needed it for its anti-malarial properties, until the Columbian Exchange. The exchange inadvertently brought with it malaria, and suddenly these American civilizations and communities needed cinchona. It was in these 1600s and 1700s that the local communities began to use it to produce quinine more. Not long after this, colonial administrations, including the Dutch, French, and of course the British, began to discover its properties. And by the 19th century, using quinine as a malaria treatment was nearly commonplace in Western medicine. This, however, brought out a problem as old as time, supply and demand. And I get to this now talking about my favourite bit. 
The British ruled over India from 1612 and it didn't end until 1947. Malaria, prevalent in warm climate countries including Singapore, India and the Philippines, was killing soldiers, especially in India. From the early 1700s up until the mid-1850s, deaths due to malaria was costing the empire up to £62 million every year. All the European colonisers wanted quinine, but it was getting too expensive for them. In fact, the British Empire was paying £53,000 every year to import quinine for its troops. But the countries in South America wanted more for it. They'd realised the British needed it, and they could afford it if they had to. And Peru was exceptionally hostile to European attempts to take Cinchona out, wanting to keep their product close to home. So the empire consulted with Clements Markham, a notable British explorer who was an expert in both botany and geography. He was hand-picked to run an expedition in South America, and in 1860, he took a team with him to smuggle back cinchona seeds and plants. It was a success. His team brought back 100,000 seeds to India. Clements was in fact seen as a hero, later being awarded a grant of £3,000 for his exemplary work of smuggling out these seeds. So Markham chose to plant the cinchona in Uti and Tamil Nadu, located in the southern region of India, set amongst the picturesque Nilgiri Mountains. Markham had actually worked out that this climate was the closest to the Andean Mountains, and more importantly, the British had worked out that this was their one golden ticket to one-up the French army, who were on their own colonising expedition, but none of their colonies had the right climate or conditions to produce quinine. So then by 1890, there were two million cinchona trees in India, all grown, operated and distributed by the British Empire. This distribution of cinchona was somewhat of a game changer for the British. Having a steady supply of quinine, which couldn't be stopped by external powers, also allowed for new opportunities in both British population distribution and also gave them a new source of income. It could be suggested that quinine actually brought about a whole new wave of British peoples to India. While previously afraid of contracting malaria, families began to arrive in droves to the country, opening up shops, country clubs, sports clubs and societies. Families began to lay down roots, travel across the country, all with daily preventive quinine in their pockets. Especially in summery coastal parts of southern India like Mangalore and Pondicherry, noted for its beaches, it was very common for families to now spend their summers here, renting out palaces and bungalows for their own entertainment. However, behind the scenes, it was gruelling. The British set up factories for quinine production across Madras and Bengal, managed by local labourers. The empire wanted enough quinine for the British troops and population to consume on a daily basis to prevent malaria. Despite over 2 million trees of cinchona in India, however, the British refused to sell quinine made in South India to the locals living in South India. Instead, the British sold it to their own medical departments, their employees in the military, and British business owners. By 1910, the empire was actually responsible for one-sixth of the world's quinine consumption. And of course, despite the local advertisements that quinine was accessible to everyone, you could buy it at any post office, it actually wasn't the case. Only those that could afford it could buy it. It's in fact a brilliant two-pronged approach. First, the government had factories produce it in quantities for the British population, not enough for local communities themselves. And then they priced it so that it was inaccessible for many of the labourers, who were undoubtedly spending more time in areas where they were more likely to contract malaria. In fact, the head of the medical board in Madras, Surgeon Major Baidi, noted that not even one of every hundred people could afford to secure enough quinine to be adequately protected 
save for Bengal, who had already been through one famine at this point. Bengal, where a majority of people were living in abject poverty, was the exception to the rule. People in Bengal were given quinine for free as part of a public health approach. However, half of the quinine produced in Bengal went to the British, and in Madras, over 90% of quinine went to the British. It could be said the magic bullet to colonization wasn't the sheer strength of its military, but actually the soft, pliable bark of one innocuous-looking tree. As Divya hinted, the impact of the cultivation of cinchona in India was to spread far beyond India's borders. It was also to play a key role in what historians call the scramble for Africa, the race amongst European imperial powers to lay claim to Africa in the decades either side of the turn of the 20th century. Africa had always been a tantalising prize for the imperial powers. It offered abundant natural resources in the form of things like copper and cotton and rubber and palm oil and cocoa and diamonds and tea and tin and all sorts of things. But in the 19th century, it became increasingly important from a strategic point of view. The conversion of the world's navies to steam power meant ships needed friendly ports to refuel that. And in the game of empire building, it was always helpful to have a few colonies in the back pocket as bargaining chits. But for a long time, Africa was in the too hard basket. The burden of disease was too crippling to enable Europeans to establish anything more than the most precarious of claims over the land and its peoples. As a result, European presence had been confined to a few coastal areas and islands where the incidence of disease was lower. Instead of asserting control directly, they traded with local people for what they wanted. When inland expeditions were attempted, the mortality rates were horrific. I'm going to quote from a book called Power Over Peoples, Technology, Environments and Western Imperialism, 1400 to the Present, by Daniel R. Hedrick. He writes, In 1840, the United Service Journal and Naval and Military Magazine published a statistical analysis of disease and death rates amongst British troops in West Africa. And among those who returned between 1823 and 1836, the conclusion was startling. 97% of those who served in Africa either died or had to be invalided out of the service. Quote ends. As always, it's important to note that malaria wasn't the only culprit here. Would-be colonists were also vulnerable to typhoid and cholera, amongst other diseases. But a number of medical and public health interventions changed that, notably the introduction of water filters and other sanitation measures. For our purposes, the most salient of these interventions was the increasingly widespread acceptance of the effectiveness of quinine in combating malaria, and the concomitant increase in production. In 1884, the global yield of quinine was around 10 tonnes, and it sold for £24 a kilo. By 1913, the yield had increased to 516 tonnes, and the price was between £1 and £2 a kilo. So, much more quinine in circulation, much cheaper. The world's leading supplier of quinine was actually the Dutch, working with a variety of the cinchona tree that produced bark with much higher concentrations of the active ingredient and cultivating trees in Java, they dominated the global market. But nevertheless, India provided enough to fuel British expansion. As we saw in the previous episode with the Union armies in the US Civil War, the key was having enough quinine to hand to administer it prophylactically, to give enough to your people that they could take it every day to prevent them from falling ill, rather than saving it until they were already sick. Unlike its major colonial rival in Africa, France, Britain could afford to do this thanks to its plantations in India. As a consequence, the French ability to project power was much more limited than the British. In the French colony of Senegal, for example, the practice was for officers to be sent home during malaria season and for white soldiers to withdraw to forts on the coast. 
we actually have something approaching a side-by-side comparison of the effectiveness of quinine. Between 1824 and 1900, the British Empire was involved in a series of wars with the Ashanti Empire in what is now Ghana. During the First War, which ran from 1824 to 1826, the death rate for British soldiers was 638 per thousand per month. A minority of those were combat deaths, but over half of them, 382 per thousand per month, were from fevers, largely malaria. Almost exactly half a century later, in 1873-74, the British found themselves entangled in what became known as the Third Anglo-Ashanti War. Of 2,500 troops engaged in the campaign, only 53 died, 13 from combat, 40 from disease. The death rate was one-sixth of the 1823 war, thanks in large part to quinine and other public health measures. By the advent of the First World War, which is when historians usually mark the end of the scramble for Africa, Britain was far away the dominant power in the heavily malarial zones of sub-Saharan Africa. And what I find interesting about this is it sort of suggests a third narrative as an alternative to the two that Div delineated. So, as Div says, at the time it was taking place, colonialism presented itself as the expansion of the Enlightenment, the sophisticated, morally and technologically advanced Europeans bringing civilization to the poor, benighted savages. And we now tend to think of it as more murderous and extractive, stronger nations using their technological advantages to enforce their will on other nations. But what the story of Quinny in Africa suggests to me is that sometimes it wasn't even that. Sometimes it was a shell game. Quinine was an incredibly powerful technology, but it wasn't even European. It was discovered and refined by indigenous Americans and had to be covertly stolen by Europeans and smuggled out of the Americas. Having stolen the seeds from one set of colonial territories, they then had to use the advantages of another colony to turn those seeds into medicine. They couldn't grow it themselves. And then finally, having stolen the technology from one set of colonized people and used the stolen land of another colonized people to manufacture it at scale, they then used that technology to consolidate their grip on a third set of colonies in Africa and elsewhere. Obviously, that whole story is rather grim, so we'd like to finish the episode with a bit of a good news story. Um... A team from MIPS with the delightful name of the Monash Milkshake team has been pioneering new methods of drug delivery for malaria drugs. Kate Carthew spoke with the head of the team, Ben Boyd. So we're interested in in lipids and fats, and as you are probably aware, milk is constituted partly by the fats that are that are in the milk, and they're there for you know to give us energy and to, to provide essential fatty acids to babies in the case of human breast milk. Um, We're increasingly getting an appreciation for the role that they might be able to play in pharmaceutical science and in um, developing new medicines. The critical thing with those is that until recently, it's been kind of ignored the fact that um, when those fats are in our gut and they get digested, our body digests them to get them into a form where they're able to be absorbed. And in the process of doing that, those fat droplets or just liquid droplets of fat um, transform from being just like an, an, an unstructured oil, like if you, you know, poured some olive oil out of a bottle, they transform from just being those little droplets of fat into really highly structured sponge-like uh, particles. So there's some really interesting behaviour that goes on with those during digestion. And um, so my group's been really interested in that. So we've got a strong interest in structures that are formed by those sorts of materials and developing new techniques. So we do a lot of work with the Australian Synchrotron in developing techniques to study those 
uh, processes. And so we're now looking to apply that understanding into the pharmaceutical area. And that's really the role of the, uh, the Monash Milk team as we see it. Moving on to kind of your work in the malaria space, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, um, amongst others, I, I imagine, have helped to fund research into using infant formula to enable the use of anti-malarial drugs in children. Can you explain a little bit about what sort of led you there and, and how that works? It really came about from networking. So I was uh, in the US um, for a conference and I made a side trip to visit somebody who I hadn't met before uh, just because I thought they were interesting and someone had recommended that I go and talk to them uh, purely because of mutual interests in I was just starting to get into milk at that stage and he, he actually had been approached by the Gates Foundation trying to find somebody who um, both knew a bit about milk but also knew a bit about uh, drug delivery because they'd found that some drugs get absorbed really well when they're given with milk. Um, with full cream milk and not with you know, other things like soy milk, for example, or um, you know, skim milk powder and those sort of things. And yeah. so they, they needed to know more about it in order to develop that into medicines. Um, and Bruce German, he got on the phone. Within a few minutes of me being in his office, he was on the phone to the Gates Foundation saying, we've found the people that you're looking for. Um, and so that's how we sort of got linked up with the Gates Foundation. And so the reason that they're interested in um, infant formula is you know, because it's a powder so having a liquid formulation is often difficult from stability perspective and preservatives are required etc etc um, mm. and refrigeration obviously in the case of milk-like sort of systems um, but also that kind of opens avenues for controlling the quality so you might ask you know why would you not just use milk or why would you not just use milk powder and the problem there is that the variability you know even from day to day between cows <laughs> is huge in terms of the composition of the fat and the fat, the fat is a critical component so it's the fats in there that interact with the drug that enables the drug to be absorbed and so in order to sort of circumvent that problem of variability of milk and availability really having control over what goes in with the drug is really important to make sure that the drug's absorbed to the same degree every time or as close as possible every time to ensure A, the quality of the product and B, that the, um, the patient gets the therapeutic effect. So the infant formula can potentially give the same benefits that milk can, um, but without the variability. So making it much more able to be converted into a, an actual formal pharmaceutical product that the regulatory authorities are, are happy to approve. Why is this research important and, you know, can you sort of explain a little bit more about um, the scale to which malaria is an issue globally, um, especially amongst children? Um, yeah, so, so malaria um, it still kills you know, hundreds of thousands of children under the age of five every year. So that's a, you know, that, that is a huge burden and we should be able to do better. And so um, part of the problem is that those, most of those children are in really low economy settings. So the driver for a traditional sort of pharmaceutical development program from Big Pharma to, um, to make an impact in that area is, is you know, relatively low 
on their own. So the, the economics just don't stack up for those big companies to do that. And that, that's that's typical in, in many infectious disease areas. It's not just malaria. Yeah. And so, so malaria, but malaria being a big killer of kids, obviously, you know, there's a huge philanthropic um, effort in order to help to deal with that problem. So the Gates Foundation is really keen to, you know, they're, they're in a position to be able to make an impact. So they do work, they work with pharmaceutical companies to, um, in partnership to try to develop these new medicines um, to treat malaria and, and other, other diseases that affect those sort of populations. So in terms of the, the next steps for, for yourself and the team and this particular research geared towards malaria, We've sort of done our job in that respect on this program in that we've allowed the foundation to understand what the kind of design parameters would be around a, um, around an infant formula formulation. So how much formula, which formula do you need to go with which drug in order to get the effect? And so um, so that's now quite well established and they've taken that, that those sort of guidelines through into clinical trials now. So that's that's largely... You know, out of our hands um, and the next sort of major thing that we would potentially be involved in with with them when called upon is the discussions that they're going to have to have with the FDA um, as the, the regulatory authority that's probably going to be approving a medicine based on this on infant formula because infant formula hasn't been used previously as, a, as what we call an excipient so the ingredient that goes in with the drug that helps it to do the job that it needs to do and so so that's where we would likely be involved in next. But in kind of parallel to that, we've been looking at using this idea now across a wide range of um, applications in terms of different diseases. And um, there's a wide range of drugs for you know, both infectious disease, well, I guess HIV is infectious disease as well. So there are HIV drugs that we now know can benefit from these sort of formulations. Um, there's tuberculosis drugs that we know can benefit from these formulations. Um, and so I think that over time, this sort of an approach with a milk-like um, formulation is good for paediatrics, obviously. So it's good for, you know, it's good for children as a population, but, you know, more critically, it, it's, it's a way of enabling a, a potentially low-cost approach to improving um, drug therapy in those sort of low-economy settings. And, you know, hopefully that if we can get the infant formula approved as an excipient, that'll really open the floodgates for a lot of programs to consider this as a, as a, as a way to um, facilitate the, the formulation of those drugs and it'll enable a number of products to come out behind the malaria one. That's all we have time for on this episode of Side Effects Me Vary. Thanks to our guests Ben Boyd, Robin Anders, and John Walker Gothel. This episode produced by Dave Rogers, me, Kate Carthew, and of course Devia Krishnan. The music you are hearing is the song Chemistry by the Melbourne artist Fia off her 2016 album The Ocean of Everything. 